You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online. I'm Will Gregerson, Community Services Librarian at Warwick Public Library in Warwick, Rhode Island. Welcome to the American Civil War, a four-part lecture series by Dr. Stanley Carpenter, Professor Emeritus of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Dr. Carpenter is Naval War College Command Historian, a United States Naval officer, active and reserve, retired as captain, 1979 to 2009, a widely published expert on British military and naval history, and the author of three World War II spy novels. Included with the lectures are slides. Click on the links in the show notes to open the slides and move to the next image when Dr. Carpenter says slide. This is part three, Hallowed Ground. I am Professor Stan Carpenter, Professor Emeritus uh, from the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Good day, this is the third lecture in the four-part lecture series on the American Civil War. And today I'm going to discuss 1863, Hallowed Ground. Slide. Well, there is a, an image of the Proclamation Emancipation, which in essence freed all the slaves in the states in rebellion. Interestingly enough, not the border states. And remember that the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware all were slave states. Lincoln, President Lincoln, considered issuing a proclamation as early as the summer of 1862 but he really needed a battlefield victory. And uh, so after Antietam, which even though you might say tactically a draw, strategically it was a huge uh, victory for the Union, and therefore the president issued uh, the uh, proclamation on the 22nd of September, 1862, to become active on the 1st of January, 1863. Now there was really no constitutional basis to free slaves by executive order, but here was the legality. If slaves are property, and property supports the war effort of someone in rebellion, then the government can confiscate as contraband and to do whatever they want to uh, with that contraband. And this is the legal basis. Now, it had a number of important uh, results, one uh, of which was it set the stage for the enlistment of black troops uh, in the Union Army, of which there uh, by 1865 were quite a number in the thousands. Now, interestingly, the U.S. Navy never had a race barrier. Uh, blacks had always served in the, uh, the U.S. Navy, but not the Army. And so the Emancipation Proclamation opened the door uh, for uh, freed blacks to serve in regiments in the uh, United States Army. And one of the early regiments, and maybe the, the most famous, was the 54th Massachusetts, which I'll talk about uh, a little bit later in terms of their uh, participation in the uh, siege of Charleston. And the movie Glory was based on the 54th Massachusetts. So that was one of the first and perhaps the most famous. Well, what about the proclamation? Slide. Well, the, the proclamation had several important foreign relations impacts. Uh, Great Britain opposed slavery and, in fact, in 1807 had outlawed the slave trade uh, and even had the uh, Royal Navy patrolling 
what had been the routes from the slave coast of Africa to the West Indies and North America, uh, the Royal Navy actually patrolled after 1807, stopping uh, slave traders and returning the, uh, the slaves to Africa. In 1833, by the Wilberforce Act, this freed all the slaves in the British Empire. So even though many in Great Britain actually sided with the South, the, um, the position of Her, Her Majesty, this is Queen Victoria, Her Majesty's government was anti-slavery. So as long as the North fought for union, there was very little public support for the North in Britain. However, once the emancipation made uh, a Northern war aim the elimination of slavery, then British popular opinion uh, began to move heavily towards the North. In fact, one uh, British newspaper commented, if the North wanted to succeed in, quote, their struggles for the sympathies of Englishmen, they must abolish slavery, end quote. So a huge international and foreign relations impact from the issuance of the proclamation emancipation. Slide. Well, here is Lord Palmerston, who was the prime minister. The emancipation cut off really any hope for the South of active British uh, intervention. And what they really had hoped for was for the Royal Navy to come in and to essentially break the, uh, the blockade. The cotton famine caused by the northern blockade finally struck British and French factories by the fall of 1862. And though the Palmerston ministry actually supported the South, they were reluctant to commit to the South until the, the southern forces proved really viable in combat and that the uh, southern Confederate states government would actually uh, be viable. Britain offered to uh, mediate between the North, um, but reluctant to commit actively to the South. Uh, you had to convince the British that the South, in fact, was viable. So um, Palmerston actually stated that the condition for Southern support was that Britain must, quote, know that their separate independence is a truth and a fact, end quote. Uh, he also stated, quote, these last battles in Maryland, uh, referring, of course, to Antietam, have either set the North again, have rather set the North again, period. The whole matter is full of difficulty and can only be cleaned up by some more decided events between the contending armies, end quote. So what Palmerston is saying is that uh, the British government's going to take a wait-and-see attitude to make sure that the South is indeed viable before any active British military support comes forth. Slide. Well, here we're back to Braxton Bragg. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, he had been appointed as the Western Theater uh, Commander of Confederate Forces. President Davis, very unhappy with Beauregard, um, sent him back to Charleston after Shiloh. Uh, and Bragg was charged with the reconquest of Tennessee. I mentioned earlier that he invaded Kentucky to try to divert Union forces in October of 62, but the Battle of Perryville actually checked that invasion. Uh, Bragg did win at Chickamauga in that campaign later in 1863, but was defeated by General Grant ultimately at Chattanooga, which resulted in his recall to Richmond uh, to serve as a military advisor to President Davis, uh, Bragg finally was sent down to Wilmington and ended the war commanding a, an Army Corps in North Carolina. Slide. We've also seen uh, this gentleman before, James Longstreet. Uh, it's going to play a central role in the battles of 1863. 
He commanded an Army Corps in the Army of Northern Virginia, and then uh, later in the year, he was with Bragg at Chickamauga. He also commanded a corps in the Army of Northern Virginia at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. So you're going to see James Longstreet, a highly prominent uh, Confederate commander in the uh, struggles of 1863. Slide. Well, what about the Army of the Potomac in 1863? Where did it stand? Following the defeat at Fredericksburg in December of 1862, the Army of the Potomac was in pretty poor shape. Uh, morale plunged, uh, desertion increased. Burnside, who's now the commander, uh, fired many ineffective officers, but he really had no real authority because there were, by this time, still too many very powerful political generals. Uh, Burnside, frustrated, offered his resignation, and it was accepted by President uh, Lincoln. Uh, Burnside, though, was a competent officer. He had not done especially well as we saw at Antietam uh, and Fredericksburg, uh, but he still was a fairly competent uh, administrator. So he was made commanding officer of the Department of the, of the Ohio, and that was in the Western Theater. Uh, Burnside resurrected his reputation, really, by capturing uh, the city of Knoxville in Tennessee in late 1863. And that was a, a fundamentally important victory uh, to the war in the West because remember the focus in the West now is to not only capture key points in Tennessee and Mississippi, uh, but ultimately the objective is to control all of the rivers, particularly the Mississippi River, all the way down to New Orleans. So uh, Burnside resurrected his reputation, if you will, by late 1863 as commander of the Department of the Ohio and his capture of Knoxville. Now, a Union Corps was sent to the Virginia Peninsula from the West, and this induced General Lee uh, to send Longstreet to Tennessee, and that's why Longstreet wound up at Chickamauga. So uh, a lot of troop movements uh, going on here uh, really in Virginia, because a lot of the Army of the Potomac now had lost an Army Corps sent down to the Virginia Peninsula, and this caused Lee to think, I can now spare Longstreet. So Longstreet, his troops are going to hop on trains and head for Tennessee, and they're going to play a major role in the uh, Confederate victory at Chickamauga. Slide. Well, here we see our friend Joseph Hooker again. Uh, Lincoln realized that the what we call in the strategy game the center of gravity, meaning that hub of all power against which all your efforts must be directed, uh, Lincoln realized it was not Richmond itself, rather Lee's army. And he also realized strategically that the best way to bring Lee to battle was to threaten Richmond. So Major General Joseph Hooker, now determined to go on the offensive against Richmond. He reorganized the army, brought back morale, instituted sanitary and diet improvements, uh, instituted an effective quartermaster and logistics uh, system, uh, hospital reforms, improved leave system, better officer training, improved drills. So despite the criticisms uh, against Hooker for being arrogant and immoral and all those um, imperfections, shall we call it. He actually was a fairly good organizer. Uh, so he's going to take command of the uh, 
Army of the Potomac, and he's going to determine to go on the offensive against Richmond. And that, in 1863, is what's going to set up uh, the battles of uh, Chancellorsville and, uh, and, and ultimately uh, lead on to Gettysburg, as I'll come to. Slide. So what about Chancellorsville? Hooker's try at Richmond. Hooker had twice the forces of Lee. Lee had dispersed forces all throughout Virginia, mainly because of a supply problem. He, he just simply could not feed a huge army in any one location. Uh, but this left him vulnerable to attack. So Hooker made this famous uh, statement somewhat arrogantly. Quote, my plans are perfect. May God have mercy on General Lee, for I will have none. End quote. The winter encampment of the Army of the Potomac north of Fredericksburg was the starting point. So Hooker sent Union cavalry in a wide sweep to cut off Lee's supplies and communications. What he hoped for was to induce Lee to abandon his defensive positions along the Rappahannock River and retreat back towards Richmond. The idea being that Hooker's forces could then catch Lee's forces on the march where they're most vulnerable and overwhelm them. But the plan began to fall apart literally from the start. Slide. Well, here we have Robert E. Lee, commander of the Army Northern Virginia. So as Hooker developed uh, this double envelopment, initiated it, uh, where he tried to catch Lee basically uh, unprepared and on the march, uh, he began that on the 27th of April, 1863. And... Hooker concentrated his forces near the little hamlet of Chancellorsville by the 30th of April. Now Lee, seeing this, divided his forces in the face of a superior enemy, which violates that, that long-held principle of concentration, uh, which basically says for ground forces or for naval forces, you concentrate as much power as you can at the key point. Well, what Lee did was he violated that rule, hoping to catch Hooker uh, in the various components of his army before Hooker could concentrate. So on the 1st of May, the first engagements, uh, General Lee and General Jackson uh, actually conceived one of the boldest plans of the war. Here's what they did. Lee sent Jackson with 30,000 troops uh, to follow a really circuitous route around the Union right and from there to conduct an attack on that exposed flank. Uh, on May 2nd, the flank attack actually stunned the Union 11th Corps and threatened Hooker's position. Well, the next day, May 3rd, the Confederates resumed their offensive and actually drove Hooker's uh, largely, uh, larger army back to a new defensive line near the Rappahannock Fords. Then Lee swung east and defeated a separate Federal force near Salem Church. So in point of fact, Lee and Jackson were successful in carrying out this uh, uh, attack uh, on uh, Hooker's forces before they could really concentrate into this overwhelmingly powerful force that Hooker had brought south. Slide. Here's what Horace Greeley, I uh, mentioned him before, go, yes, go west, young man. Uh, here's what he said about uh, the first couple of days of Chancellorsville. Uh, quote, my God, it is horrible, and I think of it. 130,000 magnificent soldiers so cut to pieces by less than 60,000 half-starved ragamuffins, end quote. Well, what about the casualties of this battle that was uh, called Lee's Perfect Battle? Well, the Army of Northern Virginia lost 13,000 casualties. Uh, 
The Union Army of the Potomac lost 17,000 casualties, 4,000 more, but Lee could not actually replace the casualties such as the North could. But the greatest loss to Lee was actually that of Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Slide. On the night of the 2nd of May, Jackson and his staff were out uh, reconnoitering Union positions. They came back riding towards the Confederate lines. Uh, they were challenged by sentries and failed to give the countersign. And, of course, the sentries doing what they should have been doing. If you don't give the countersign correctly, it uh, must be the enemy, and they open fire. Uh, these were sentries of the uh, 18th North Carolina Infantry Regiment of Lane's Brigade of A.P. Hill's Division. The sentries opened fire. Jackson was hit three times, twice in the left arm, which had to be amputated. And he was moved to Fairfield Plantation, where he died of complications, actually from pneumonia, on the 10th of May. And if you're driving between Richmond and Washington, D.C., along I-95, uh, you can actually uh, take a little side trip. It's just a couple miles off the interstate to Fairfield Plantation, and you can actually visit uh, the, uh, the building where Stonewall Jackson uh, passed away. Here's what Lee said to Jackson just before he died. Quote, give General Jackson my affectionate regards and say to him, he has lost his left arm, but I my right. End quote. Slide. Now let's move on to the next great event, and that is the Battle of Gettysburg. 1 to 3, July 1863. Gettysburg may be the most famous battle in American history, certainly of the American Civil War. Why did it happen? Well, the victories at Chancellorsville and earlier at Fredericksburg uh, induced Lee to attempt a second invasion of the North. Remember, the first one had been into Maryland, and that resulted in Antietam. The target was to threaten southern Pennsylvania and, of course, ultimately to be able to move down and threaten Washington, D.C. The strategic effect desired was to show that the South could not be beaten and the North was vulnerable to counter-invasion. Lee likely believed that myth of Southern invincibility on the battlefield, and he certainly acted on it. Uh, the invasion of Pennsylvania in, in June, late June, July of 63, really was a natural expression of that offensive-defensive strategy. Uh, after all, Lee had fought successful defensive battlefield uh, victories uh, at uh, Fredericksburg, at Chancellorsville, against great odds. And so he figured while the Union Army of the Potomac was in great disarray following Chancellorsville, it was time to strike. Uh, this would also relieve pressure on Vicksburg, which was under siege at the time. Uh, the army could live off the rich farmland of Pennsylvania, which would give Virginia uh, a break logistically. And so on the 3rd of June, General Lee initiated the move by going into the Shenandoah Valley uh, from his position uh, on the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg. And this really is the move that initiated the whole Gettysburg campaign. Slide. Well, what about the Army of the Potomac? Uh, Hooker uh, responded by moving the Army of the Potomac westward to counter Lee and stay between uh, Lee and uh, Washington, D.C. But after Chancellorsville, Hooker offered his resignation, which 
President Lincoln and General Halleck, remember Halleck was the commander-in-chief of the Army, accepted it, and they appointed George Gordon Meade as commanding officer of the Army of the Potomac on the 28th of June. Uh, Meade had been one of the Corps commanders. So a somewhat surprising appointment, and ultimately, though, it turned out to be a good appointment. Slide. Well, let's come back to our favorite cavalry commander, Jeb Stuart. As I mentioned earlier, he was much less effective at Gettysburg. He was out of communications uh, with General Lee for several days. Thus, Lee had very little of what's called situational awareness. In other words, we'll call it battlefield intelligence or intelligence of the enemy, uh, his location, his numbers, etc. Lee sent uh, Stuart out to ride around the eastern flank of the Union forces on a reconnaissance mission, but uh, Stuart was gone for over a week and took with him the three best cavalry brigades that wound up basically missing uh, from the Battle of Gettysburg. So I'll come back to the, to the role of Stuart. Slide. Let's look at the Gettysburg campaign, 3 June to 3 July 1863. So the first action was actually involving cavalry and Jeb Stuart. Uh, at Brandy Station, Virginia, Stewart and his cavalry were surprised by a body of Union cavalry, and they were driven off, but it showed that the Union cavalry had actually reached a skill level uh, comparable to the Confederate cavalry. So now we're two years into the war, and by this time you're beginning to get a lot more experience, uh, a lot better training, uh, a lot better officership and leadership, particularly in the Union cavalry. Now, given the character of Jeb Stewart, he was not going to take this slight lightly. So it caused him to charge off in pursuit of restoring his reputation. And as a result of him chasing the Union cavalry around, he lost touch with Lee for that critical week leading up to the battle. So, what happened with General Lee? Well, he began crossing the Potomac River into Maryland on the 15th of June. General Longstreet followed on the 24th of June. Uh, Lee learned that the Army of the Potomac uh, had crossed the river also following along or going along parallel uh, to try to stay between Lee and Washington, D.C. And uh, therefore, Lee ordered a concentration of his various forces near the little town of Gettysburg, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And this resulted in the accidental battle, really, as forces coalesced around this prosperous uh, uh, little manufacturing and college town, Gettysburg. Slide. So let's look at Gettysburg, some of the highlights day by day of this three-day battle. On the 30th of June, uh, North Carolina units under uh, General Johnston Pettigrew were sent forward towards Gettysburg to collect supplies, uh, especially shoes. There was a very large uh, shoe factory there in Gettysburg. Now, the Union cavalry responded uh, and moved in under Brigadier General John Buford. They spotted Pettigrew's forces moving towards town and assumed that they were just simply uh, Pennsylvania militia. But by Wednesday, 1 July, it became pretty obvious that uh, they were, in fact, Confederate infantry. So two brigades were sent forward at 5 in the morning on Wednesday, 1 July, uh, under Buford. Uh, Buford dismounted his troopers and formed three defensive lines. 
The plan was to use a delaying action or skirmish line, if you will, uh, awaiting the arrival of Union infantry as a backup. Now, the Confederates pushed back the cavalry by 1020 or thereabouts on this morning of 1 July. The vanguard of 1st Corps under Major General John Reynolds arrived. So what you're seeing all during the day of day one uh, is the coalescence of forces, both sides, moving in. Uh, General Reynolds was actually killed by a Confederate sniper while standing astride his force while directing artillery placement. Uh, Shelby Foote, uh, who's the, that great historian uh, of the um, uh, Civil War who wrote three magisterial volumes uh, of the war, uh, and you actually saw him doing a lot of commentary if you watch the Ken Burns uh, Civil War uh, PBS uh, uh, show that came out, I believe, about 1990. Uh, any rate, um, Shelby Foote said that Reynolds was probably the best general in the Union Army throughout the war. But he was killed by a sniper. Now, the Confederate forces gradually pushed back the Union forces, including uh, the Iron Brigade, which had arrived by this time, very famous Union uh, brigade, pushed them back through the town and through the seminary grounds, up to what was called Culp's Hill. Culp's Hill. Slide. Well, here you see a map, and you see uh, the forces under Ewell and A.P. Hill, uh, and there you see Reynolds, uh, and you see them being pushed back up to the hilltop. Uh, Culp's Hill, and uh, ultimately uh, what's known as Cemetery Ridge. So, here's the tactical situation by afternoon of day one. Uh, by the early afternoon, the position of the Union forces had solidified south of town along Cemetery Ridge and Culp's Hill. Uh, Major General Winfield Scott Hancock arrived and took command and stated, quote, I think this is the strongest position by nature upon which to fight a battle that I ever saw, end quote. Uh, one of the longstanding military maxims is you want to take the high ground and hold it if you're going to be on the defensive. So Lee sent orders to Richard Ewell. He had taken command of Jackson's Corps to take Cemetery Hill, and this is important, if practicable, if practicable. Not take the hill, take it if practical. Now Ewell determined it was not practicable and didn't. Jackson, on the other hand, would have determined it to be practicable and likely this early in the battle probably would have taken the hill and turned the flank of the Union position. In other words, Cemetery Ridge or would not have been tenable for the Union to occupy. So the rest of the day's action centered on trying to turn that Union right flank on Culp's Hill and ultimately uh, Ewell's forces were unable to. So you had a stalemate essentially by the end of day one. Slide. On day one, three factors really determined the ultimate evolution of the battle. First off, the delay by Buford's cavalry allowed for the heavy infantry under Reynolds and then later commanded by Hancock to move into these highly defensible positions. Secondly, the failure of Ewell to capture Cemetery Hill before more Union reinforcements arrived and dug in uh, meant that uh, the Union uh, right was never turned. And... Thirdly, that inability to throw the defenders off Culp's Hill by nightfall really set in motion uh, day two and day three of the battle. Uh, these are the, the real factors that 
ultimately from day one determine the outcome of the battle. Slide. So let's go now to day two. Assault on the right. Assault on the Confederate right. Overnight, most of the uh, bulk of the armies arrived. The Union line, uh, as day two uh, uh, sunset came up, uh, the Union line ran for about two miles along Cemetery Ridge with uh, Culp's Hill forming what was known as the Fish Hook. And you can see on the map here what it uh, looked like geographically. Confederate lines ran for about five miles parallel to the Emmitsburg Pike, that road that you see running southwesterly uh, from out of town. That's going to play a huge role in the upcoming events. So Lee's plan was for Longstreet's Corps uh, to assault the Union left flank that was up on the hills and simply roll it up. Uh, the units would attack in echelon, meaning that they would be committed one at a time. And this would prevent uh, Meade from moving troops to the point of attack simply because he would still have to defend against a, a possible attack on his center. So meanwhile, there was a demonstration against Culp's Hill to freeze those troops in place. Here you see Stuart's absence really playing because this meant that without that reconnaissance, Lee was unaware that there were strong Union forces holding their left flank. And in fact, a signal station, a uh, Union signal station on Little Round Top, one of the hills there, actually detected Longstreet's movements. Uh, Longstreet convinced Lee to delay until at least one more brigade arrived in place, and this meant that the assault against the Union left actually didn't kick off until about four in the afternoon. That's going to be critical because that allowed Union forces to reinforce, as you're going to see. Slide. Well, what happened here on the Union left, the Confederate right? The Devil's Den, the killing ground. Uh, the battle raged late in the afternoon in what are known as the Peach Orchard, the Wheat Field, and the Devil's Den below Cemetery Ridge. Uh, General Dan Sickles, 3rd Union Corps, moved down actually into the Wheat Field and the Peach Orchard area, uh, which meant that was a foolish move because it meant that he could be flanked on actually three sides. Uh, this led to desperate fighting in, in these areas, particularly around Devil's Den, which you see a picture of here, series of boulders. And this allowed Confederate snipers positioned in Devil's Den to open fire on Sickles' Third Corps and inflict horrendous casualties. So eventually, though, uh, the Union forces were driven back out of the orchard in the wheat field. And uh, uh, finally, um, the Confederate advance, if you will, was stopped by reserves of the uh, Union Fifth Corps that had moved down from Little Round Top from the hill. So the Third Corps was shattered. Uh, the Confederates uh, reached the crest of the Cemetery Ridge in one point, were actually driven back by a Minnesota regiment, and that, that really saved the Union position at this point. Slide. Well, let's turn to Little Round Top. And there you see uh, photographs after the battle, Little Round Top, and in the distance, Big Round Top. So fighting devolved around Little Round Top the hill. Uh, Brigadier General Governor K. Warren realized the vulnerability of Little Round Top, and he ordered in a brigade of four small regiments, uh, the 16th Minnesota, the 44th New York, New York, the 83rd Pennsylvania, and most famously of all, the 20th Maine the 20th Maine, remember them. 
repeated assaults on the Union extreme left, which was held by the 20th of Maine. And this was made by the 47th and 50th Alabama Infantry uh, of uh, Hood's division. The 20th Maine was almost out of ammunition, or in some cases, soldiers actually out, while the 15th Alabama was beginning yet another assault up the hill. At this point, General uh, Joshua Chamberlain, or Colonel at this time, Joshua Chamberlain, who commanded the 20th Maine, ordered his men to fix bayonets and charge down the hill. This downhill bayonet charge against a disjointed Confederate line, uh, which was caused by the foliage and the trees breaking up their assault, it devastated the 15th Alabama. Many were captured and killed. But the result was the assault saved the position on Little Round Top and ultimately the Union line. Slide. Well, what about Joshua Chamberlain, uh, Colonel at this time of the 20th Maine. Uh, he was a professor at Bowdoin College in, uh, in Maine. Um, he actually joined uh, the, the Army in 1862, was given command of the 20th Maine. He also had elements of the 2nd Maine Regiment with him at uh, Gettysburg. Uh, Chamberlain was wounded many times in the war. Uh, by the end of the war, he'd been promoted to Major General. After the war, he later served as president of Bowdoin College and governor of Maine. So he is one of the key personages, if you will, in this story, particularly in terms of saving the Union line at Gettysburg and really saving the day. Slide. Well, the final shots of day two were fired by about 10.30 p.m. that evening. And both of the armies, completely exhausted faced off each other um, in a draw, essentially. So Meade sent a telegram to Washington, the war office. He said, quote, The enemy attacked me about 4 p.m. this day, and after one of the severest contests of the war was repulsed at all points. I shall remain in my present position tomorrow, but I'm not prepared to say, until better advised of the conditions of the army, whether my operations will be of an offensive or defensive of character. End quote. So Meade convened a midnight council of war. You can actually, when you visit the battlefield, you can actually go into the farmhouse where this council of war occurred. And the council and Meade resolved to hold in place and force Lee to attack them against prepared defensive positions. Now, interestingly enough, Meade advised Brigadier General Gibbon of the 2nd Corps to expect an attack in the center and ordered reinforcements sent to bolster the center of the Union line. That's critically important because Lee, as you're going to see, estimated that the bulk of the Union forces were still on the right, think Culp's Hill area, and the left, round top, big round top, little round top. Lee assumed that the weakness of the Union line was in the center, and almost by accident, General Meade ordered 2nd Corps to bolster up the center of the Union line. And that's going to be a hugely important decision for what happens on day three. Slide. So let's go now to day three, Lee's great gamble. Lee was not happy with the results of day two, the inability to turn the Union flank. So he decided to assault the center of the Union line. Uh, he believed that Meade feared for his flanks and that the center was thin. Longstreet argued for a strategic movement again around the Union left flank. 
but Lee insisted on a direct frontal assault uh, with a demonstration against Culp's Hill, of course, to, to sort of cement in place the uh, Union defenders there. So out of Longstreet's corps, uh, Lee picked uh, George Pickett's division and six brigades from A.P. Hill's corps designated for the attack. The attack was preceded by heavy artillery and bombardment, in fact, 150 guns that started about one in the afternoon. Problem was, the shots tended to go high and beyond the Union troops, so very little damage was actually done. Now, the Union artillery commanding officer had ordered his guns to stay silent, and that, of course, bolstered really the impression that the Union was weak in the center. Um, he actually ordered that primarily to to um, not only give the impression of casualties, but to save ammunition for the assault that they could see was coming. Slide. Well, there is George Pickett. He was a West Point graduate, a career soldier. Uh, his division actually arrived the evening of 2 July, which meant that uh, his troops were fresh, and that's why uh, they were picked for the assault. After the assault, which I'll discuss in a moment, Lee ordered Pickett to reform his division for a defensive stand in case of a Union counterattack, to which General Pickett responded, General Lee, I have no division, end quote. And that essentially captures the destruction done to the uh, Confederate troops that were crossing that almost mile of ground between the woods across the Emmitsburg Pike and on to the stone wall behind which the Union troops were posted. Slide. So the charge, known as the high watermark of the Confederacy. So after the artillery uh, barrage, about three in the afternoon, 12,500 Confederate troops stepped off from the ridge line uh, of the trees there at Seminary Ridge. Remember, the Union forces are formed up on Cemetery Ridge. It's a three-quarter mile walk across open ground in the face of... Uh, uh, artillery and infantry, uh, the Union forces were posted behind uh, a stone wall, which, uh, although it's diminished today, you can still actually see that uh, remains of the stone wall. The um, Confederates received artillery fire from uh, both flanks, uh, from Cemetery Hill and from Little Round Top. Here's where that Emmitsburg Pike, the road, comes in because it had split rail fences lining either side which meant that that tended to break up the momentum of the charge, forcing the Confederate soldiers to actually climb over the split rail fence. And, of course, that made them easier targets as they were climbing over the fence. So the attack was directed towards a copse of trees in the Union Center, which I believe at the battlefield you can still see those trees or some remains of them. Now, one of the most famous uh, parts of the Union line was known as the Angle, and that's where... Brigadier General Lewis Armistead's brigade of Pickett's division actually hit, and the Union line uh, temporarily wavered then and, and recovered as reinforcements poured in. And uh, Armistead uh, was actually killed at this point, uh, facing his former West Point roommate. Uh, the two of them actually met face to face just before uh, Armistead was killed. Uh, this attack on the angle uh, was called the high watermark of the Confederacy. That's where that term comes from. Now, you will notice 
um, in, the, in the map there, if you look at the line and you see in the north it says Pettigrew, it says Pettigrew, I'll give you an example of just how devastating this charge was. You'll notice that uh, uh, Pettigrew's unit uh, hit the uh, right side of the Union line there, and the 28th North Carolina Infantry Regiment stepped off that afternoon with 493 men. They returned an hour or two later to the Confederate line, 95 of them. So that gives you an idea of the horrendous casualties that were incurred in this charge of the Confederate infantry. Slide. Well, the Union Center held uh, casualties, uh, a third in the whole battle, roughly 50,000 total casualties. A third of Confederate generals were killed, wounded, or captured. Uh, a half of the men who had taken part in that charge on the third day were casualties. Uh, Lee reformed his line along Seminary Ridge that night of 3 July. Uh, he hoped that the Union would attack, in other words, a reverse dynamic from earlier in the day. Meade didn't, and this induced Lee to uh, basically cut his losses and retreat back into Virginia. Here's what General Longstreet said of this charge, which he opposed. He said, quote, My heart was heavy. I could see the desperate and hopeless nature of the charge and the hopeless slaughter it would cause. That day at Gettysburg was one of the saddest of my life, end quote. There have long been arguments over uh, the decision um, to make the charge. Uh, one of the criticisms of Meade um, has been that he didn't take advantage of Lee forced to retreat. But what Meade said was he did not want to repeat Lee's mistake. Quote, the bad example Lee had set me in ruining himself attacking a strong position period, we have done well enough. And indeed they had. Uh, they had forced the Confederates back down into Virginia, inflicted horrendous casualties on Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, had saved Washington, and basically this was the turning point. This combined with Vicksburg, which happened at the same time, really was the turning point of the war uh, against the South and in favor of the Union. Slide. Well, by July of 1863, there were other events going on. Uh, manpower shortages in the Union uh, meant a conscription act, the draft, in March of 63. Uh, the first actual call-up was in July of 63, uh, which prompted anti-draft riots, especially in New York City. Most of the discontent was from recent Irish immigrants. Uh, they tended to be Democrats. The Democrat uh, politicians used fiery rhetoric to criticize Lincoln and the Republicans. Remember, Lincoln was of the Republican Party. And then on Saturday, 11 July, when they did the first drawing of the names, uh, by Sunday, hundreds of, of these uh, folks had congregated in the various bars and vowed to resist uh, the, the, the draft. And this set off four days of rioting in which 105 people died. They targeted the draft offices, federal buildings. Uh, they targeted uh, free blacks in the city. They targeted uh, Republican-leaning newspaper offices and businesses, particularly ones that employed black employees. Well, finally, the army was sent in and actually fired into the mobs 
which restored order, but that was where the 105 died. Uh, now, the South had actually instituted a draft um, a year earlier in 1862 with similar dislike. And in both places, in the North and the South, uh, the draft was seen as violating um, the government overreach. Uh, and it caused a great deal of, of really of hate and discontent. The most serious being, of course, the anti-draft riots uh, in New York in July of 1863. Slide. Let me turn now to the assault on Charleston. It was an attempt to capture Charleston. It failed in the summer of 1863. Uh, an initial naval assault failed to get past the harbor defenses uh, earlier in April. Now the key position, defensive position, was Fort Wagner, or sometimes you hear it referred to as Battery Wagner. Um, the first attack actually failed. A second one eventually did take Battery Wagner in September of uh, 1863, uh, but the Union unable was uh, was unable to take Charleston in 63, and Charleston actually only finally surrendered when threatened from the land uh, by General Sherman in 1865. So uh, the assault on Charleston. Let's look at that slide. So the assault on Fort Wagner. Uh, here's where you saw the 54th and 55th Massachusetts Infantry regiments raised in the spring of 1863, primarily in Massachusetts, primarily in the Boston area. Uh, they arrived in Charleston in late May of that year to take part in the uh, Charleston campaign. All white officers, many were combat veterans. Uh, the enlisted men were all black. And so here you have the first instance of, a, uh, of major Union regiments being raised among uh, freed blacks. So uh, the 54th actually spearheaded an attack on uh, Fort Wagner on the 18th of July. They lost 227 casualties, including their commanding officer, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. However, the men won great praise and recognition for valor and steadfastness, and this led to many, many, many more all-black units being raised. I mentioned earlier the uh, movie Glory. Uh, Morgan Freeman is the actor that plays a major role there, and... Uh, Matthew Broderick uh, actually played Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. So if you haven't seen the movie Gloria, it came out about 25 years ago, I uh, highly recommend that. Slide. Now let's turn to Vicksburg. It was the Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River. The Union had to control Vicksburg in order to split um, the Confederacy in half and to allow traffic on the Mississippi River. Now Vicksburg sits on a natural bluff overlooking the river with a bend in the river, which uh, actually several bends in the river, but a major one which made passage around it long and dangerous and slow. So since the um, Confederates had mounted a number of artillery batteries up on the heights, up on the bluff that could shoot down, it meant that you really, you really couldn't pass any river traffic until you controlled it. Uh, Jefferson Davis said of Vicksburg, quote, Vicksburg is the nail head that holds the South's two halves together. And that is very true. Lincoln said, quote, Vicksburg is the key. The war can never be brought to a close until the key is in our pocket, end quote. Now, there was another site that was uh, equally important, and that was Port Hudson, uh, Louisiana. That was on the Red River which actually joined the Mississippi River 
and uh, many of the Confederate supplies actually came from west of the Mississippi, particularly horses and cattle from Texas. So if you controlled Port Hudson and you controlled Vicksburg, you basically had control of the waterways all the way up and down, and you could cut the Confederacy literally in half. Slide. So back to General Grant now, uh, commanded the Army of the Tennessee. Uh, General uh, in chief of the army, Halleck, ordered Grant to take Vicksburg. So in the spring of 1863, Grant devised a two-prong attack with uh, General Sherman leading one column. This was known as the Bayou Operations of March and April of 1863. Failed to force the, uh, a surrender of Vicksburg, but it showed Grant to be very aggressive, very bold, and persistent. Uh, remember, he was known as Unconditional Surrender Grant. He was determined to take Vicksburg at all costs. Slide. What about the Army of Tennessee now? Well, 75,000 troops, roughly, under Grant's command. By the battles of 1862, they were now highly trained and highly experienced. Facing them was about 12,000 Confederate troops in the Vicksburg area, with another 24,000 nearby in a mobile force under General Joseph E. Johnston. So Confederates had roughly half the number of the Grant's Army of Tennessee. Slide. Well, Vicksburg uh, was under naval attack. Um, Admiral Farragut attempted in May of 62 and then in June 62, coming up from, uh, sorry, June of 63, um, sorry, June of 62, uh, both those months actually uh, came up from New Orleans to try to, to bombard um, Vicksburg from the sea, or rather from the river. But the problem there is he really had no troops to force a surrender, and so that didn't work. However, the Navy was going to be very, very important in the Vicksburg campaign. Uh, General Grant worked very closely with Commodore David Porter's river flotilla. Uh, this is what we call today joint operations. So on the 16th of April, 1863, uh, Porter actually ran seven gunboats and three troop vessels loaded with supplies past Vicksburg. Pretty bold move, but he pulled it off. On the 22nd, six more passed. So this set the stage for Grant's assault from the south um, as well as the east on Vicksburg. Slide. Now here you see a, a map of the campaign, and you see how topsy-turvy really that the river is at this point. Uh, attempts in the spring had failed, as I mentioned. And now Grant came up with an audacious plan. It was to march down the west side of the river, cross over down below Vicksburg, and then threaten Vicksburg from the south and the east. So this is what prompted the running of the gauntlet uh, by Porter on the 16th and 22nd of April, because this would give uh, Grant uh, uh, naval support from the south and ultimately from the east. Uh, Grant also sent Colonel Grierson's cavalry riding through central Mississippi to divert attention and to draw off Confederal forces. And this was the most successful cavalry action of the war. In fact, if you've seen it, the uh, John Wayne movie, The Horse Soldiers, is based on Grierson's raid. Very successful raid. So Union forces on the 29th to the 30th of April crossed over the river and engaged in a series of uh, battles south of Vicksburg. They defeated uh, Johnston's covering force. 
They captured the state capital of Jackson and turned west towards Vicksburg. So now basically all the Confederates had were those 12,000 or so defenders uh, under Pemberton uh, inside the Vicksburg works. Uh, they were not going to receive any reinforcements. And so on the 18th of May, that's when Grant initiated the Siege of Vicksburg. Slide. What about uh, John C. Pemberton? He was from Pennsylvania, but he chose to fight for the South. So he was forced to pull his forces back inside uh, the city as Grant swept across uh, Mississippi uh, and, and defeated uh, Johnson's forces. And so now you have a six-week siege. Uh, Pemberton was actually forced to surrender on the 4th of July. They literally ran out of food. Port Hudson was besieged starting the 27th of May. It surrendered on the 9th of July. And what this gave was Union complete control of the Mississippi from the headwaters in Minnesota all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. A week later, the first Union ship came downriver and arrived in New Orleans. President Lincoln declared, quote, the father of waters again goes unvexed to the sea, end quote. This is why the siege of Vicksburg, combined with the defeat of Lee's army at Gettysburg, was really the, the turning point of the war. Slide. Let me turn now a little bit to what I call new military instruments of war. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but let me look at the power of the railway. Uh, it's the first war where you really see railway and trains becoming critically important, particularly in terms of moving troops about uh, and uh, a logistical support. So the steam power obviously revolutionized warfare. Uh, trains provided you the ability to move uh, troops rapidly, to move supplies. Uh, in 1826, uh, Massachusetts authorized what was called the Granite Railway uh, to move granite, actually granite from the quarries, a lot of quarries of granite in New Hampshire, down to Boston to actually construct the Bunker Hill Monument. Uh, now, if you go to um, Boston, uh, you can actually, as you're coming through the city of Boston, look across to, to uh, Bunker Hill and you actually can see that monument. But these were horse-powered rail carts. Uh, so they were on rails, but they were not yet steam-powered. In 1850, by this time, so roughly 20 years later, 9,000 miles of rail had actually been built. Both sides in this war quickly appreciated the strategic mobility advantage of the rails. And in fact, uh, you'll recall, at First Bull Run, Johnson's troops actually arrived from the Shenandoah to Manassas Junction by rail. So one of the tactics that both sides actually did when they could was systematically destroy any rolling stock, meaning uh, train cars, uh, locomotives, bridges, rails, uh, if they could operate in the other's area of operations to disrupt the flow of troops, equipment, and supplies. So rails, fundamentally important. Slide. Well, what about the South uh, rail lines? Uh, I mentioned earlier that the very first actual operating steam train uh, was in the South, um, and this was the 1827 South Carolina Canal and Railroad Company, which linked Charleston and Savannah. Very shortly after that, there was a rail line built in North Carolina. So the South was actually the first to use steam locomotives regularly. 
Uh, southern railroads roads, uh, mostly connected agricultural growing areas to ports and uh, to the nearest waterway. So that was a way to move these commodity crops to market. Uh, and then most of the transport from there would be along the extensive uh, river system to the uh, seaboard ports. Uh, the problem was, compared to the north, the south still did not have as much rail uh, transportation uh, as the north did. Uh, but in 1863, the Confederate government took virtual control of all the rolling stock in the south. But by 1864, the Confederate rail network had pretty well collapsed mainly because you couldn't get spare parts. And of course, the, the Union troops, whenever they could, would uh, destroy uh, any rolling stock or rails or bridges they could find. By 1865, there was very little traffic moving along the South's rail lines. Slide. Now, one of the ways rails were used was to move large, heavy siege guns or siege mortars. Do you see a picture here of a siege mortar? The advantage, you could move them quickly, you could move them easily, uh, you're not weather dependent on horses. Uh, the disadvantage, of course, is you could only fire them in the area where there were rail lines, and of course your rail line had to be pointed in the right direction. Um, but still, uh, where you could use the rail lines for huge siege guns, they were a huge advantage. Slide. Now, both sides actually mounted uh, large caliber uh, artillery on rail guns. Same advantages and disadvantages as the siege mortars. And here you see a Confederate uh, rail car with a large caliber artillery piece. Slide. Well, another technological industrial innovation that uh, influenced warfare at this time was the telegraph. It revolutionary, uh, re revolutionized military communications. In the 1840s, Samuel F.B. Morse invented the telegraph and the Morse code. And in 1861, the U.S. Military Telegraph Corps was formed. Now, the loss of Harper's Ferry uh, early in the war, uh, Washington lost its major rail and telegraph lines uh, to the northwestern states. Uh, because this was where, uh, through Harper's Ferry and then into Maryland, is, is where most of those lines went. So they established this telegraphic service to provide um, reliable communications to and from the field to the headquarters at the War Department. Interestingly enough, this was a civilian organization. It was not under direct military control. They were civilian operators. But they were operators uh, typically with railway communications, because the railroads were, were very early in the, the move to use telegraph to route trains and cargo. And so these men had railway communications experience. Uh, they were hired to be sent into the field by the war office or the Navy Department. They were charged with erecting and maintaining telegraph lines on the battlefield, typically in units of about 150 men each. They would go out in the wagon trains, like you see depicted here in the slide, they would follow the army and construct uh, these temporary telegraph cables. So you would have one wagon stationed at where was the battle starting point, if you will, and another would follow the flow of the battle. So orders would be given to these telegraphers who would uh, dit dot, dit dot it back uh, and forth from headquarters to field um, headquarters to Washington, D.C., to the military tel telegraph office there in D.C. And so 
basically you had almost real-time communications between the field commanders and back to the headquarters and from field commander to field commander. To give you an idea of the extensive nature of this, between 1861 and 65, uh, the uh, U.S. Military Telegraph Corps uh, laid uh, 100 or 15,000 miles, 15,000 miles of telegraph cable. Slide. Well, another technological innovation that revolutionized warfare uh, was in weaponry. I've already mentioned the 1861 Springfield rifle, uh, which went smooth bore to rifled muskets by this time. I mentioned the percussion cap ignition system, self-contained cartridges, uh, muzzle loaders were being replaced by breech loaders. Uh, one of the most famous was a single shot to multi-shot rifle known as the Henry rifle, 1860. Uh, in fact, there you see a photograph of, uh, of the Henry rifle. Uh, pistols, where there had previously been basically hand load each chamber uh, with uh, powder and shot, now you had pistols with six shots with metal cartridges. You also had uh, an early machine gun called the Gatling gun, which appeared in large numbers by 1864. So these revolutionary developments in firearms, which gave a faster rate of fire, a more accurate uh, rate of fire, are going to have a huge impact, particularly when the troops are still essentially fighting in that linear warfare of an earlier age. Slide. And I mentioned earlier uh, the mines, or torpedoes, they were known as infernal machines. Uh, they were often beer barrels that were waterproofed. Uh, they were put uh, in the water with a contact uh, with the hull that would set off the fuse. So uh, if you struck this contact, it would uh, light off the fuse and then light off the charge. Uh, the South had what were known as Fretwell Singer torpedoes. And uh, this was that spar torpedo that I mentioned earlier. Um, this was a type of mine, if you will, uh, the Fretwell Singer torpedo. As a passing ship would knock off the, uh, a plate that was held on the mine, uh, it would pull some spring-loaded triggers together, and that would set off the fuse. So pretty innovative uh, uh, mine. And there you see a picture of a beer barrel, if you will, a mine that was anchored tethered to the bottom. So you're beginning to see lots of innovations in, uh, in technology for war. Slide. All right, let's, uh, let's turn now back to the West. And General Rosecrans versus General Bragg. So the war in the West centered around control of that very important and major rail center of Chattanooga, which uh, really joined Virginia to the West a lot of north-south lines, it was a major coke and iron manufacturing center. So a critical point. There was a whole series of engagements that occurred in the summer and autumn of 1863. Chatt uh, Chattanooga, Chickamauga, Missionary Ridge, Lookout Mountain. So this was the focus of the war in the west in the uh, late summer fall of 1863. So Braxton Bragg, Commander, Army, uh, Confederate Army of Tennessee. He had about 70,000 troops. But the problem was his area of operations extended all the way up to Knoxville and all the way through the whole West, basically. 
Uh, he was faced by William Rosecrans and his Army of the Cumberland. Now, Bragg was tasked with countering uh, Burnside. Remember, he was uh, now CEO of the Army of the Ohio, and he was threatening Knoxville. And, of course, you had to face off against Rosecrans. So what does, what does Bragg do? Well, he decided to let Rosecrans come to him. Meanwhile, Lee sent Longstreet with two divisions from the Army of Northern Virginia by rail to reinforce Bragg. I remember I mentioned that the Army of the Potomac had sent uh, an entire corps down to Southern Virginia, and so that uh, allowed Lee to move some troops. So here you have uh, a great use of what are called interior lines of communication, where you move from one theater to, uh, to another very rapidly along your interior lines of communication. Slide. So here we have a map of the situation as of the morning of 19 September, and this is going to be setting up the Battle of Chickamauga. Slide. Chickamauga, 19 to 20 September 1863. Huge number of casualties uh, in this battle. The Union, 16,000, the Confederate, um, 18,000, even though it was the most significant Union defeat in the Western theater. Uh, the Union actually suffered less casualties than the Confederates. Uh, now, the, what happened here was Rosecrans consolidated his forces and, and drove Bragg south and out of Chattanooga. Uh, Bragg recovered and counterattacked just north of Chickamauga Creek, which actually I believe is in northern Georgia, just south of the city of Chattanooga, Tennessee. So Bragg's going to counterattack now that he's reinforced by Ro uh, Longstreet, and he's going to attack Rosecrans, who's taken control of the city of Chattanooga. Slide. Now, on the 19th of September, uh, Bragg attacks, but he couldn't break the Union line. However, here's where that whole fog and friction of war as Clausewitz says, the probability of war, uh, the chaos of war, Rosecrans received some faulty information about a gap in his line. The Confederate attack basically couldn't break that Union line, but now Rosecrans received this faulty intelligence. He started moving units to where he thought they were needed, but what it actually did was inadvertently created a huge gap in the Union line Longstreet saw this, exploited it, and attacked. Slide. So Longstreet's corps actually had arrived from Virginia on the 9th of September. So once Longstreet realized here was a gap in the Confederate line, he ordered to the front quick march. So eight Confederate brigades assaulted the gap in line, uh, Union line, and actually drove Rosecrans off the field. Now, the Union forces were able to form a defensive line that held until dark, which the Confederates were unable to break through, uh, but the Union forces were pushed back into Chattanooga uh, and put under siege from Confederate artillery that uh, was in the surrounding heights. It is in this retreat at Chickamauga that Major General George Thomas, who commanded a rear guard that actually held the line and allowed the Union forces to retreat and escape, uh, he was then called the Rock of Chickamauga, Rock of Chickamauga. So Bragg failed to follow up and pursue. Uh, he did, however, capture a great number of Union supplies. So tremendous defeat here uh, for uh, 
uh, for the north at Chickamauga. But certainly the Chattanooga campaign is far from over. Slide. Well, what happened? Oh, Grant arrived and took charge of the siege of Chattanooga. Uh, Bragg moved some forces to a very high rocky ridge known as Missionary Ridge. And he left 9,000 defenders on what was called Lookout Mountain. It was a steep precipice overlooking the valley. Uh, if you stand on the top of it, you actually can look down this huge cliff, if you will. You can see the whole city of Chattanooga. And in the distance, you can see the Tennessee River running through as well. So Grant decided he was going to assault the Confederate forces uh, as a diversion uh, to draw off Confederate forces while he made a uh, main assault on the Confederate forces at Missionary Ridge. Uh, the Union just simply overwhelmed the Confederate defenders with uh, numbers. Uh, they drove up the mountain and captured several hundred uh, prisoners. And what's amazing, if you go and see the battlefield here at Missionary Ridge and Lookout Mountain especially, uh, you find it hard to believe that anybody could actually scale those cliffs. Uh, they are actually that sheer. Slide. So this is going to set up on the 24th and 25th of November the battles of Chattanooga. So that initial assault carried Lookout Mountain. Uh, the south was driven back off the mountain. Uh, and uh, that really... Uh, broke the siege of Chattanooga. Uh, General Hooker, who's now out west commanding, wrote, quote, fired by success with a flying panic-stricken enemy before them, they pressed impetuously forward, end quote. And this battle at Lookout Mountain was known as the Battle Above the Clouds because literally there were cloud formations below the Confederate position. Uh, on the 25th of November, Grant then initiated the general assault on Missionary Ridge the next day. Uh, Bragg feared being outflanked on his right, and he was forced to abandon his position, actually retreated 30 miles south towards Atlanta. So what did this mean? The North now controlled the access to Atlanta and central Georgia. It meant they had firmly in control Chattanooga and the South Rail communication from Virginia, the Carolinas, going towards uh, the west and the further south, were completely compromised, and it also set up General Sherman for his assault on Atlanta and marched through Georgia the following year in 1864. Slide. Here you see a photograph taken of what Lookout Mountain looked like. There's the summit. And you can just imagine trying to assault that on foot, climbing up that hill. Uh, what about Bragg? Well, after the whole Chattanooga uh, campaign. Uh, Bragg was disliked, severely criticized by his subordinates. Here's what Longstreet said about him, quote, nothing but the hand of God can save us or help us as long as we have our present commander, end quote. Uh, here's what uh, General Cavalry General Nathan Bedford Forrest said about Bragg. He was unwilling to quickly follow up his Chickamauga victory while the Union was in disarray, and so Forrest asked the question, quote, what does he fight battles for, end quote. Well, Bragg finally admitted that he was inadequate as a theater commander to the president, uh, offered his resignation, 
saying, quote, I fear we both erred in the conclusion for me to retain commander here after the clamor raised against me, end quote. So it's at this point, um, as I mentioned earlier, Bragg was brought back, uh, sent to defend Wilmington, North Carolina, which one of, one of the few remaining um, ports in Confederate hands, and Joseph E. Johnston was appointed to command in the Western Theater. So exit Braxton Bragg, um, another feather in the cap for General Grant. Slide. Let me wrap up with a few words about one of the most important episodes, I think, not only in the history of the Civil War, but really in the history of the United States, and that is Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. He traveled to Gettysburg by train to dedicate the Soldiers National Cemetery. And in just over two minutes, uh, President Lincoln gave one of the greatest, most powerful speeches ever given. Uh, I don't know about everyone in the audience, but I remember in eighth grade, in what was then called junior high, now I guess it's middle school, in eighth grade history class in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, one of our assignments was we memorized the Gettysburg Address. What it did, it captured the essence of human equality as expressed by the Declaration of Independence and the promise of the American experiment. It proclaimed that the war was for the preservation of the Union with a new birth of freedom uh, and equality for all citizens. And after that two minutes of the Gettysburg Address, uh, it was reported that there was utter and complete silence. That's how powerful these words were. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this is correct. I have heard that President Lincoln wasn't really sure up until the last minute uh, what he was actually going to say, and he wrote down his notes on a back of an envelope. True or not, um, the Gettysburg Address is one of the most important two minutes ever spoken in the history of mankind. Slide. Here you see one of only two known photos of President Lincoln at the Gettysburg ceremony. Uh, it was apparently taken about noon uh, on the 19th of November, 1863, uh, about three hours prior to the speech. And uh, if you look very carefully, it's slightly colored in. He's uh, right in the middle of the crowd there. So by late 1863, the opposition to the emancipation and freedom for all slaves had really um, become uh, the watchword, if you will, or the policy statement of the North. It's going to impact the elections of 1864 and particularly the status of the what had been a very vocal Democratic Party. Uh, there were people, in, particularly in the Midwest, uh, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Kentucky, Ohio, uh, strongholds of the Democrats, uh, and, and they actually were known as copperheads. I'm not sure who originated that term, but that's what they were called. So they essentially opposed Lincoln and the Republicans. Uh, on General Grant, after the whole Chickamauga um, campaign, or rather the Chattanooga campaign, here's what Lincoln said. He had finally found his general saying, quote, Grant is my man, and I am his the rest of the war. And he certainly was. Slide. So let's wrap up. Uh, here's the map again and that I like to put after each one. Uh, so let's look at the end of 1863, and you see what's happening. 
southern controlled area shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. Well, how do you wrap up 1863? Lee's second invasion of Maryland came to naught uh, with the Gettysburg into Pennsylvania campaign. Tennessee was lost. The road to Atlanta and central Georgia was wide open. The Union controlled all of the Mississippi River. Only Wilmington, North Carolina, Mobile, Alabama, Charleston, South Carolina, as major ports were still in Confederate hands. Uh, Lincoln and the Republicans had successfully turned the war into one not only for preservation of the Union, but abolition of slavery. Slide. Here is... I think uh, one of the most powerful statements of what was happening in the Confederates. Uh, this was by Josiah Gorgas, or Georges. He was the chief of Confederate ordnance, uh, and he wrote in his diary on 28th of July. And by the way, he was a brilliant logistician, if you will. He just did magnificent things with little, which, of course, is what the Confederacy needed. But ultimately, he realized uh, after the events of July 1863 that pretty much um, the jig was up. Uh, and here's what he said. Quote, events have succeeded one another with disastrous rapidity. One brief month ago, we were apparently at the high point of success. Lee was in Pennsylvania, threatening Harrisburg and even Philadelphia. Vicksburg seemed to laugh all Grant's efforts to scorn. Port Hudson had beaten off Banks' force. Now the picture is just as somber as it was bright then. It seems incredible that a human power could affect such a change in so brief a space. Yesterday, we rode on the pinnacle of success. Today, absolute ruin seems to be our portion. The Confederacy totters to its destruction. End quote. Josiah Gorgas, Chief of Confederate Ordnance, in his diary, 28 July, 1863. All right, so that is 1863. Uh, and our next lecture will finish up the war 1864 to 65. Look forward to have everybody back for the fourth and final lecture in this series on the American Civil War. If you have questions for Dr. Carpenter about the American Civil War, send them to roadieradioonline at gmail.com and we will pass them on. Up next is part four, War is Hell. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is made possible by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. This is Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online.